Well, hello, everybody. This is Chuck Roach, and welcome back to the Latino Vote Podcast. We are honored here in our nation's capital to be hosting my brother from another mother, Mike Madrid himself here in Washington. Mike, welcome to D.C. It's always good to get back to D.C., especially when it's a little bit muggy and humid. Reminds me why I moved back home to Sacramento to the 115 degree heat, drier heat, Cooking out there, um, I love I love how much we've been able to actually meet up and record these podcasts live in the same place over the course of the past few months. I don't know how much more we're going to be able to do it through the stretch here because we're only 60 days out, brother. We're only 60 crazy, days out crazy. of this midterms. A lot's going to be happening, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. And I don't want to hear no more about all this bromance bullshit because I was out in California a couple of weeks ago, and now he's back in D.C. <laughs> it's just kind of working out that way. There were some good folks in D.C. last night who wanted to hear me and Mike talk about what was going to happen in the elections. And just for all of you scoring at home, for the right price, me and Mike Madrid will just show up at your conference and tell you what we think about elections and squirrels and brown consultants matter and all of those things. So hint, hint, wink, wink, big rollers out there. You want a private, you want me and Mike Madrid to do your wedding? We do have a cost. We will do your wedding. For a price. Yes. We won't do it for cheap, right, Mike? He's got a great mariachi outfits too, I by do. the way. Yeah, I am. I'm wearing so, my best uh, Yvera today, this so red if, one. If you do want a Latino vote mariachi band at your wedding, uh, just <laughs> DM us, send us a note, we'll be there. Look, it's a big morning also today. Uh, we are rolling out, and I want Mike to talk about it, uh, our new website. Yeah. A new website that I think lots of folks have been clamoring for, but today it's available. You can go to latinos.vote, Mike. Tell everybody what they can find there. Big website launched today, as you just mentioned, Chuck. Look, the, the podcast has grown uh, much faster than we expected, and a lot of the requests that were coming in for information were about so many varied different things on so many different races in so many parts of the country. We figured, let's just put all of this stuff on a website. Let's aggregate it. Let's pull it uh, all together in a one-stop location where you can pull all of the news from around the country and start getting some of the information that you want to take these conversations to the next level. Um, again, think of this as kind of a real clear politics meets drudge report. Um, we're going to be uh, not just putting together the the headlines of the day where the Latino vote is, is being mentioned and being discussed, but we will also be having uh, opinion editorial pieces from Latino thought leaders um, some of the best thinkers and strategists, politicians, unfortunately, one or two of those as well, to talk about what they see coming up. Um, and we're also going to be going over some of the nuts and bolts of the polls uh, individually. So it's going to be a great site, latinos.vote. Uh, visit us, send us suggestions and recommendations. We're also going to be using that site to premiere a number of the ads focused on the Latino community on both sides of the aisle to do our own analysis, to show you what they've got out there, both Republicans and Democratic consultants in their fight for the Latino vote. And I think it's just going to be a, a, a great opportunity to get a sense of what's happening all in one place and check it out. You're going to really like it. And I'm mean, super excited as well. You know, this is a big chance to take on a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of false things out there on like whatever your crazy uncle's website where he gets conspiracy theory, uh, conspiracy theory shit on his websites. We're going to take actually news from the Washington Post, the New York Times, Fox News, anybody who's talking about the Latino vote in a news article. That news article will be updated every single morning around 7 a.m. on this website. So you can get up and go to one website and see all of the stories in the last 24 hours that have mentioned Latino and Latino votes. It's a place where you can go and see. And me and Mike Madrid aren't writing all the articles. You can go there and see what other folks are saying. And Mike said a couple things that, that stick out to me here. One is Mike's always talking about polls on this podcast. There will be a special section on polls mm -hmm. where you can go and see what uh, people have been polling around the Latino community. So you can see the poll, see what the poll is saying. Mike Madrid will probably have something to say about that poll, the sample size and what it is. And then the op-eds. We're asking a lot of our friends 
influencers and people that are in the Latino community. That could include some of you, matter of fact. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast and you want a place to come and talk about the Latino vote and you're an operative in Kansas City, Missouri, and you really don't have an outlet, Mike, this is a place where they can actually come and do some of that writing, which I know was important to you, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the ideas is what it's about. Building a sense of community is what it's about. Um, look, Chuck and I have been doing this combined, you know, 60 years. Um, what we have come to learn over that period of time is that the only experts out there are the people that are living it and breathing it, and that's you. So the more that we can create a place where people can come and be a part of this discussion, not just here on the podcast, but also, you know, with your thoughts, with your ideas, uh, with the written word, submit us something. Uh, I'm not saying we can run all of it, but, but, you know, a lot of times we'll push back and say, hey, can we have a little bit more of this perspective, a little bit more of that perspective? Shoot us something, five to 700 words. There'll be placed on the website to do that. Make sure that you're subscribing there, subscribing to the podcast, helping us elevate and amplify the voices in the community, especially if that's yours. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're looking, looking forward to accomplish here. Two more things that are going to happen on the website. Again, that's Latinos with an S dot vote. There's no dot org. There's no dot com. It's just Latinos dot vote. It'll take you right there. I didn't believe it at first either, but when I typed it in, it came up. It looks beautiful <laughs> on an iPhone. Uh, two more things. The podcast itself, this podcast and all the back episodes will live on this website. So you're getting the news of the day. You're getting polls. You're getting op-eds, but you also have the Latino Vote podcast that will live there as well. And something that Mike Madrid is super excited about is merchandise. We're actually going to have T-shirts <laughs> that Mike helped design with a great Latina design team mm -hmm. uh, on the website. And I think we're going to start with T-shirts and coffee mugs. Is that what we decided? Yeah, the shot glasses I got I got turned down on. I was hoping we'd get some tequila, <laughs> you know, our, our, our Latino Vote tequila brand that we're going to be launching a little bit later on. Stay tuned. Uh, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to go with some t-shirts and mugs right now. A lot of people out online were asking for some merch, especially with some of the content we've been putting out. We decided, hell, let's lean into that. Let's do that. And so we're going to. Well, that's good. So let's get to talking now. Enough about the Latinos.Vote podcast again. Give us your feedback. Go there. Check it out. Sign up because we're going to have a regular newsletter. And when you go to the site, it's going to ask you to give the email. You don't have to. But we want to have a way to build this community nationwide. And getting everybody's email address is a way to give you updates of what's happening in real time. So make sure you give your email and you sign up to be a part of our regular newsletter for the Latino Vote Podcast. And what we're building here will live well beyond what's going to happen in the last 60 days or the next 60 days, Mike but the next 60 days are going to be damn fun. They're going to be exciting. Let's jump into this. Uh, let's see what's been going on with Latinos, with national news. Uh, two things on the national level before we start talking about specific states that have jumped out to me that happened this week, and I want to get Mike's input on both, or he can pick whichever one he wants to talk about, is two big things in my mind has happened. One was you had this whole Biden speech where he did this dark Brandon routine where there was folks on the right that hated it, folks on the left that loved it. There's lots of back and forth. It just kind of consumed the news for a couple of days. I'm going to get Mike's input there. And then also one thing that I put on the agenda today that I wanted Mike to react to is we're seeing all the things about this, this excitement about the midterm now with Democrats and things moving in our direction, whether it was the Dobb decisions. But what's not being talked about with the Latino vote or with turnout as a whole, and I'd be curious, Mike, if you think this is driving a part of this, you did so much work uh, with the Lincoln Project in the last election against Donald Trump and mm -hmm. what he stood for mm -hmm. uh, and what he was doing to this country, is all the stuff here recently about what's going on with Donald Trump. You mentioned this last night in our speech uh, over at the conference, and I, it kind of sat with me, and I wanted to ask you, it's not one thing, and because we've gotten so used to all the crazy turmoil that comes out of Mar-a-Lago every day mm -hmm. that's supposed to be, quote, unquote, unprecedented, is this having an effect on the midterm with January 6th and then the Mar-a-Lago secret documents and then him doing the stuff that he's doing with Steve Bannon going to New York today to turn himself in? Right. Is all of this going to affect the turnout or is it just another thing? Well, let me, let me just start by saying Steve Bannon is in custody so I've, I've wanted to say that for two years. <laughs> so, so I'm going to take this opportunity to just say that first. Steve Bannon is in custody. Let's start with the the, the President Biden speech because cool. I know yeah we're a little bit we're you know we're a little bit uh, talking about this after a, a couple of days have happened and things have settled. There was this hoorah on the right saying, "Oh my God, this is the most evil, divisive speech a President of the United States has ever given." 
Um, obviously ludicrous, but that was kind of the response. The second was Democrats, I think, felt emboldened that he was finally leaning into the fight. I was watching you on Twitter that match. You were enjoying it in the beginning. You were like, this is the Biden we paid for. This is what you want, guys. <laughs> Look, after Labor Day, this and that was what this was. The, the timing is exactly right. These guys know what they're doing. This was by design. Joe Biden is now leaning into the fight. And you need to pay attention to that because it's very, very rare for a president in his first term in the midterms to be out there leading the fight. Remember going back to 2010, Barack Obama was hidden. People didn't want to be around him. His negatives were so high. He was staying in Washington, D.C., keeping his head down because he was worried about how many seats the Democrats were going to lose in the midterms, and they did take a drubbing. Same thing with Donald Trump in 2018. Same thing with George W. Bush, and you know, all of them do that. This is very different. This is a completely different posture. First of all, Biden's numbers are rising. He's sitting in the 44, 45% range. The generic ballot has moved towards the Democrats. Women especially are completely fired up about this election cycle. If I'm advising Joe Biden, I'm saying exactly to do exactly what he just did, which is grab the sword, get on your horseback, march down the field and start calling in the cavalry. Let's break that Republican line. You break that front line and you have a completely different battle on your hands than you were looking at just 60 days ago. That that's what this was about. They were trying to piss off MAGA. They were trying to piss off the Republicans. The Democrats at this point are no longer worried about a Republican advantage in terms of a red wave. They are fighting in a turnout battle on both sides. I believe there's going to be historic turnout. Both sides. Both sides. You're going to have a ton of Republicans showing up. They're fired up. They're ready to go. They think that, 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 that uh, Joe Biden is going to be the end of the Republic. Uh, uh, Democrats, especially women and young women, are fired up, saying, "You know what? You've already taken our rights. You ain't taking anything else. Let's go. Let's fight. Let's 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 suit up. Let's saddle up and march to the sound of the drums." Uh, and I think again, it's going to be probably a historic historic turnout, matching probably 2018, just four years ago, the last midterms. Wow, that's big. Not sure if it surpasses, but it could. I wouldn't be surprised if it did. And I think it's going to have a dramatic impact on the outcomes of what's going to happen in November. How do you look at it? Well, I, th I look at it based off of what I see that's different. And there's a reason and patterns into why politicians make moves that they make. Because there's somebody around them who's reading a poll who realizes there's a problem. That's not your expert. I know I keep referring to that. But I learn things when I'm sitting with Mike and we're together talking. And, you know, when you talked about the underperformance of 18 to 30-year-olds last night and about the student forgiveness debt thing. And then mm -hmm. you talk about, well, I think about that in the way that. He has spent, he did three trips to Pennsylvania right. in eight days. Yeah. Three trips. That tells me something yes. that this is ground zero. Exactly. That Fetterman is not 10 points ahead, mm -hmm. that he has a good shot and mm -hmm. he's got a flawed candidate, but that it's not a give me. And the president took three days out of his schedule. Mike, you have worked in the White House. You've worked around the White House. Yeah. That's a big deal to go to the same state three times. That's actually a good point. I didn't actually recognize that. You're exactly right. And then one of those was the speech in Philadelphia. And the other thing is that he named Trump. And he, yeah. he named him over and over. He names him three days before Labor Day mm -hmm. when everybody's starting to focus in on the election, which also tells me that people on the inside were reading the numbers and know that he needed to, I hate to use the term man up because he could as well woman up, but he needed to confront yeah. no matter what the gender bias was there and confront and threat just like you did, Mike, in the last election cycle, saying, look, this person is an existential threat to our democracy. Yeah, I remember you saying that. I'm glad he finally said it. I mean, not that he didn't believe it, but there's something very politic and very um, classy about the White House, restoring some semblance of order where the president of the United States doesn't lead into this and use hyperbole. Words matter especially coming from the Oval Office, especially coming from the President of the United States, that's what made this so significant. The fact that he is saying there is an existential threat to the republic and we're going to go all in on these midterms. We believe that the Democratic Party, if it wins, can beat back this threat to the American experiment, to the American Republic, to American democracy itself. But it's going to be requisite that everybody get engaged in this fight, including Republicans who do not buy into this MAGA concept. And remember, he said MAGA Republicans 30 times. That was not a coincidence. He's saying MAGA Republicans because the polling on that is absolutely motivating independents to flee from the Republican corner and into the arms of the Democrats. And he's going to keep saying it as long as the polling shows that it's working. And there was actually an NPR Ipsos poll today, or maybe it's Marist poll, I'm sorry, came out this morning. Incidentally, there's going to be a ton of polls this week. 
ton of polls this week, and actually there's going to be a lot of polling from now through the end of the elections. But a uh, Marist poll today showed that 25% of Republicans think that MAGA is a threat to American institutions. One in four Republicans now is buying into the Biden line that MAGA Republicanism, Trumpism, is an existential threat to the country. It's why it was smart politics for Biden to lean into it. I will expect that they continue to do that. And as long as Democrats now have what we call message discipline in the business. Right. You got a whole whole host of issues that are breaking your, in your direction. You pick the strongest one and you drive, 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 drive that message. Do not get distracted. Do not spread yourself too thin. Take the winning hand and play it over and over and over. You know, the one thing that I will say that's a very positive for the party is that they're doing that, Mike. And we see our own, uh, my own privilege to get to work for lots of groups. And I will tell you, in most of the cases where we are running ads targeted to Latinos, mm-hmm. we are leading with the choice issue. And then we pivot in the middle of the ad to talk about that as a example of things that the Republicans have been doing to fight freedom, to your point, democracy. Yep. But the message discipline has been very concise mm-hmm. in the party around this Dobbs issue. We talked about this again last night and how I underestimated this. But I do think that this is a place where we could use the Dobbs decision, what's happening with taking women's freedom and rights away from them as a way to motivate people to vote in, a, in an off-year election. Let me give you some examples of that for all of you nerds who are just like me and my election nerds. And remember that, you remember back in the set, what was that? Oh, it was, it was Revenge of the Nerds. We was like, nerds! <laughs> remember that? That always makes me think about that. Sorry, I digress. You are aging in yourself. 19- right? I, 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 that was a long time was, ago. I think that was the Reagan-Mondale race when it that movie came it out. It was way back then. I was a young man, had hair. God, it was so much freer back then. But anyway, I digress. So if you think about it, in 1994, when Mike was 42 years old, in 19... 19- <laughs> 94, in that off-year election after Bill Clinton had just got elected president, Mm -hmm. we had some of the lowest turnout we'd ever seen in a midterm election at about, Mike, 38% of the electorate showed up that year. Yeah. All right? You look at the – that's the low point. You look at the spike, which was 2018, and I'm going to ask for Mike's help here. Was that close to 55, 60%? percent. 56%. 56%. So the low of 38, Mm -hmm. the high of 56. These are both off your elections, boys and girls, right? Now let's compare those to presidential election years where we get, what, Mike, 70% of people to vote? 65, 70? Sometimes higher than 70. So the key there, again, boys and girls, is there's a gap between the non-presidential years and the presidential years. Sometimes that gap is as much as 20 points. Sometimes it's 30 points. Sometimes it's just 18 points like it was between probably 16 and 18, if you look at the turnout. If still it was, significant. Still, right? Yeah. Now, with Democrats, normally it hurts us mm-hmm. and that Republicans always vote at a higher margin than us, especially in an off-year election. Mm-hmm. Because they're more edu- normally more educated, they, it's easier for them to go vote. There's all these things that you could assume. There's not a lot of scientific data, but there's one thing that is not a lie. More Republicans vote in an off-year election than Democrats almost every off-year election. So when Mike Madrid is talking about the Dobbs decision being a motivating factor for young women and for women as a whole and other forces within the party, it's making up a weakness that my party has always had, which is the performance in the midterm elections, which again, changes the dynamic of the race completely. And you start seeing what Mike talked about last night is there's no thing of these waves this way or the waves that way. You just see more of a chance for Democrats to make up ground in certain areas if there's something undertow that's turning them out, right, Mike? Yeah, let's talk about turnout for, for just a minute because it's extremely important. And I think you, you just set this up perfectly. When you look at a 1994 race or a 2012 race, these are historically low election cycles. I'm sorry, 2014. 14. Um, it, these, these midterms are historically low. Latino vote especially incredibly low, record low, even lower than the non-white voting group by a significant margin. Cost us every statewide election in Nevada in 2014. Yeah. Every single one because the low Latino turnout. Low Latino turnout actually killed the Democratic Party. And, and turnout, by the way, we should probably spend another time on an episode about this, has been an endemic problem for the Democratic Party. Having said that, we are in an era where I believe we're going to start seeing much higher turnout levels consistently. If you look at 2018, 
We had the highest turnout rate in the midterms in the history of the country. Highest Latino turnout in the history of, of data going back tracking Latinos, which goes back probably about 30 good years. Highest turnout ever. 2020, you have the highest presidential turnout ever. More Americans voted than ever at any time in, in any time in our history of this country. Highest Latino percentage and highest raw vote, highest actual voters turned out uh, from the Latino community than ever before. The reason is because of this highly charged, highly politicized environment. Unfortunately, when things are really bad in a country, when things are very unstable in a democracy, that's when you see really, really high turnout levels. You know, I do a lot of work internationally. A lot of times what we see is once the tanks start rolling, you see turnout rates starting to hit 90% because the stakes are real. The stakes matter. The outcomes of those elections matter. That's the environment that we are heading into right now. We've actually been in it since 2018, but if you don't think your vote matters, after Dobbs, after Uvalde, with the January 6th committee hearings, or even if you're driven by the economy as it relates to inflation or the right, wrong track direction of this country, you are sadly mistaken. The stakes have never been higher. 67%, most polling is showing 67% of Americans, equal reflection on both parties, believe that American democracy is in trouble, that it is at stake in these elections, and it's why you're going to see very high turnout, not just in, the, in presidential elections, but in the midterms. And I think really for the very foreseeable future, we're gonna have really, really high turnout, Chuck, going forward. And I think it's gonna, I don't think it's necessarily gonna benefit either one party or the other. I think Democrats are actually normalizing their turnout model. The reason why Democrats used to suffer more than Republicans is because they're younger, they're more people of color, they're poorer, and those are all three correlate factors to low voter turnout. Those communities are those amongst the most under attack right now. They're feeling it. They're showing up to vote. And I think they're going to start matching older white conservative voters in the stability and the higher rate of turnout. But we'll just have to wait and see. I think that that's, I think that you're right. I think that you're onto something. I will say this as just a fact of the matter. And I'm going to say it without mentioning the congressional district, but I will give you that it's in the southwest and that it's made up of over 40% Latinos. I'm trying today, Mike, for the last three days, I've been putting together a focus group in this CD. Mm. I'm running an experimental program with a, with a donor and a group of folks, and we're, we've been going in for the last two months, Mike, and talking to Latinos, all of them. It's a Bernie Sanders-type test in this CD, okay. uh, where you open the voter file, and you go talk to people who have never voted, mm -hmm. who vote in drop-off elections, who vote in every election. We, we said, let's go talk to all of them, like I did in Nevada, and see if we talk to them over this period of time. They will perform better than a look-alike county that's the same in Latinos if that didn't get talked to for an experiment looking towards the future. I'll just say that because I can't. I got to protect my client and and the and what we're doing because it's kind of state of the art. So, just for quick clarification, you're talking to registered voters who really have not shown up to vote before, right? But also voters who showed up some mm -hmm. and voters who show up all the time. Okay. But if they're Latino yep. on the voter file, we are saying, let's talk to all of them. Everybody. That means knock on their door five times, send them six pieces of mail, wow. start Spanish language, TV, radio, and digital. Okay. And run it for two months. I wish it was been six, but at least it's the last little bit here. I tell you all of this, girls and boys, boys and girls, to say that, my pollster called me last night because it was really important that we get people to show up for these focus groups, all Latino voters, all Latino focus groups. These are just looking at brown voters only, this experiment. And if you, the, po the pollster called me or emailed me last night and said, to your, this is going to make you happy. He said, we're having a hard time finding Latinos who say they're not going to vote. Yeah. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah. He's like, we're calling people to, to you know, Mike, how this works. We call and go through. We know they're an infrequent voter, but we want them to act like an infrequent voter so we can get them in a focus group and then ask them some questions. Mm -hmm. The poster said, we're having to delay this by three days because we can't find Latino voters saying they're not going to vote. Yeah. This is in the Southwest yeah. in a marginal CD. People are energized. Right. And, and there's, I, just, there's just no, no doubt about it. Let me say one other thing about this. No one's talking about this yet. So you heard it first here on the Latino Vote podcast. One of the things that people don't remember about 2018 is everybody was anticipating this enormous blue wave. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. This big response to Trump. And then what happened was as the votes came in, it looked like a blue trickle right. because so many people showed up to vote that on election night, there were still millions of votes to process 
and the break, the vote break didn't go as significantly for the Democrats as people thought. But over the course of three, four, five, six days, as they started counting more of those votes, there was a blue wave. It just came a lot later because of the processing. Mm. That's going to be a regular characteristics of campaigns going because forward. Because of vote by mail? Uh, vote by mail. Now, remember, that's a great point. Yes, vote by mail at that point. Right. Okay. But that changed in the 2020 election when Donald Trump basically said vote by mail is fraudulent. Or, so or, or all the, most of these Republicans that were voting by mail showed up on election day. Exactly right. Mm. And so there was, a, there was this hidden blue wave that showed up in 2018 that didn't necessarily materialize until three, four, five, six days later. A lot of these states don't count their votes that voted early until election day or after, right? That's exactly right. Okay. So remember what is likely to happen in the 2022 election cycle you heard it here first, folks, is the actual results that we're going to see at 8 p.m. on Tuesday night when the polls close is going to look nothing like what the actual election results look like when we count all of the votes three, four, five days later. My strong sense is it will be much more Democratic than it looks like. It'll be much bluer three, four, five days later when all the votes are finally counted than it looks at 8 p.m. on uh, Tuesday, November 3rd. Here's what I can't figure out. And here's what I'd like your opinion on, because I'm not a believer, is that Republicans will show up and vote when Donald Trump is not on the ticket. Now, I don't I, I, there's a there's we have to separate this. So like as Mike talked about this turnout in 2020 and that there was going to be this big blue wave for Democrats in 2020. I know we talked about 2018. They were supposed to be this blue wave as well. But what I knew is that in my mind, in the elections I was working on is that I was anticipating a blue wave against Donald Trump. And that happened. What I wasn't expecting was this huge rise in Republicans who had never voted, who showed up to vote for Donald Trump, who didn't even vote for him the first time, exactly right. who come out of the woodwork, right? right? Here's the point, And I think this is really important is I don't know Georgia would tell me that it, that, it, that it's not, that it, that it won't happen. But is there, I just don't see the Republican Party getting that group of Republicans back to vote with Donald Trump not on the ticket. Yeah, let me clarify what Chuck is saying. When he's saying Georgia would tell me, no, he's talking about the special elections yes. that were yeah, held thanks. right after the elections in November, right. which is the perfect way to look at that race. Because Donald Trump is not on the runoff if, ticket. If Donald Trump's name right. is not on the ballot, Republican turnout with low propensity white voters goes down. Right. That means they are voting just for him. They are not as inclined to vote for the Republican Party, even if he tells them to, even right. if he's out there rallying and saying, folks, Trump and Trumpism, my name is really on the ballot, even though it's not on the ballot, they still are not showing up. No. They are literally voting just for him, not for the Republican Party. And so you're asking exactly the right question. And if we had the exact answer, we could tell almost with 90% certainty what the outcomes of the midterms are going to That's be. Right. That's the biggest unknown for me. It's the biggest unknown for me as well. So is what is, I'm convinced that Democrats are going to show up. I'm convinced that the weakness that Biden had with 18 to 25 year olds is gone. It's been fixed. I'm convinced that Democrat, uh, Democratic women are going to show up in record numbers. I believe that Latinos are largely coming back to the Democratic Party. Not entirely, but enough to offset that rightward shift because Hispanic women by plus 15 in the Wall Street Journal poll are coming back and saying, I'm voting for Democrats because of Roe versus Wade going away. Okay, I am convinced all of that is true. The one variable is, will those Trumpy voters, especially in deep MAGA counties, as we call them, 80% plus Trump counties, mm -hmm. rural, white, largely non-college educated, places like Georgia, the, uh, all of the counties surrounding Maricopa in right. Arizona, all of these deep red counties, is that vote going to show up and make the difference? The answer is we don't know, but if history is a guide, I would suggest it's not going to show up at the same rates that it was by just one, two, three percentage points off of uh, Trump's name being on the ballot, similar to the difference between 2018 and 2016 and the difference between 20 and, uh, and, and the specials that you were talking about. These voters don't show up unless his name is on the ballot. Right. Um, I believe that that will probably continue, especially because his legal trouble is getting worse. Right. And if, if if the Republican vote turnout is just off by a couple points, just 2%. That's all you need. It's game over. Right. Game over. You're going to have Democrats do much, much better and overperform in the House, Senate, gubernatorial races than conventional wisdom would have dictated just a month ago. 
Mike alluded to something that's very important, and that is a new Wall Street Journal poll. Uh, you'll get this podcast release a couple of days after we have recorded here because we got to go in and edit out all of my cursing. <laughs> is that um, this Wall Street Journal poll shows 15 point Latina shift towards the Democrats? Now, we mentioned this again last night that we should make public for all of you just to make sure that we're measuring apples to apples. Look, uh, women folk in the Latino genre are already whooping Latino men's ass when it comes to performance for Democrats. So they're already between six to 15 points ahead already before there ever is a Dobbs decision. Mm -hmm. So you take that and then you couple a Dobbs decision and then you have even more energy with a group of voters who I would argue are already the best performing voters for Democrats already. So you're motivating a class and a genre, is a genre right? A sex of people, not a genre of people, a sex of people, these women, and they are pissed and they're gonna show up and vote for Democrats. And, and, yeah, look, this is important to understand. Let me underscore Chuck's point a little bit. There is a Hispanic gender gap that is bigger than it is for whites. Exactly. And so Hispanic women have been voting for Democrats, not only in greater percentages, but in actual turnout numbers, which are higher. The women in our communities lead our social, lead our political thought. They are the ones that more often than not are running for office. They are the ones that have been activated in this environment. The truth is they've been activated for, for a number of years now. You and I both know as political consultants that if you can convince the female head of household, the matriarch, the abuela, the mama of each family, you're going to have a very different outcome in that household when it comes to voting time. It's why we focus very largely on trying to get Hispanic women to show up to vote because if she shows up to vote, she's bringing her husband, she's bringing her sons with her to show up and vote and turnout goes up. We have done that for many, many years. What we are seeing now is when this rightward shift was happening, the way that it has been offset is with the end of the Dobbs, I'm sorry, with Dobbs decision and the end of Roe Wade, the Wall Street Journal poll is showing a 15-point move, a plus nine position now of these women now saying we're voting for the Democrats, we're motivated, we're going to show up. Even if men don't show up at the same rate, my guess is they won't, you're going to have a decidedly more Democratic vote, voting block or voting demographic, voting faction, however you want to call it, than we would have had than pre-Dobbs. And again, this, this may be one of the most surprising things that I have found in looking at the data, looking at the numbers, is not just that Dobbs had this enormous impact, this political earthquake, which which it did, and, and, and we'll see if it's sustainable. My strong suspicion is it will be, but that it happened with the Hispanic community as it was already leaning into this rightward posture. And this just in, this just in, breaking news, brown women saving our ass again. That's what's breaking right now is that they have not only pissed off the most active voters who perform the highest with the Democratic vote, but the people who actually run our families. Like uh, I last night openly admitted that if I had uh, understood this issue more, uh, that I would have seen this coming. And uh, it was not a surprise to anybody that's, that two dudes, two Mexican dudes, um, I give Mike Madrid credit because he did see it coming, uh, didn't realize how pissed off women would be. Mm -hmm. But again, this is uh, something that's really, really important that's coming down, the, and I think it will benefit the Democrats. You know, we were just talking about Latinas and their power, and as we think about Latinas and about how they're driving the performance for Democrats, mm -hmm. uh, last night uh, at the conference we were speaking at, we talked about earlier, um, there is this concern about Nevada. There was this Hill article, I think I sent you, Mike, yesterday, the yeah. day before, where Democrats are feeling really good about Pennsylvania. Right. They're feeling decently better about Wisconsin, mm -hmm. but there is this undertow of anxiety around the Nevada elections. And I think you alluded to it earlier when you talked about midterm elections and how poorly we did, and I brought it up in Nevada in the last off year in 14, right? I think Democrats in Nevada are doing a good job. My question is, is it good enough to overcome what we're seeing the headwinds? And explain to me, Mike, why you think that it's troublesome in that state. Yeah, let me say first, Nevada, you, you're in trouble, girl. I mean, this is a tough environment for Nevada, and I, I want to explain why. Um, but I, too, am getting a lot of those questions kind of on social media where people are saying, you keep saying Nevada's in trouble, but explain it. Like, tell us why, right? Uh, and so let's do that. Again, that's the purpose of this podcast. 
The, Nevada, uh, in 1992, going back to Clinton-Gore, 1992 was the first time that Nevada broke for a Democrat in recent memory. Uh, between that time, between the Clinton years and Obama in 2008, it really regressed back into a Republican position. Uh, since that time, you have seen this state move slowly towards a Republican red trend. It's tightening up. It's getting closer. Now, that doesn't mean that there haven't been Democrats that have been there, but they have seemed to be a little bit more anomalous than what the trend would otherwise dictate. And what I mean by that is I'm a big believer in looking at movement, whether it's in polls or whether it's in looking at long-term trend lines. If you follow the trend line, it's going to tell you with a high degree of certainty what the outcome is going to be. It's why I was so bullish on Georgia in 2020. It's why I was so bullish in Arizona in 2020. It's why I'm very deeply concerned about North Carolina and why I'm deeply concerned about Nevada. Okay, Nevada, especially because that's where Democrats are holding right now. What is wrong with Nevada? The problem there is what we really saw was the demise of the culinary union in Clark County because of COVID. And that, I know that sounds strange and like a small peculiarity, but Chuck, you've done a lot of work in Nevada very successfully. You were the one who was organizing those caucuses, you and your team in 2016, that shocked the world with Hillary Clinton and basically broke into a 50-50 draw with Latino voters. Most of that work was done in Clark County, Nevada. Now, let me explain why that's so important. Las Vegas is the hub, the population hub of the entire state. It's only like six or seven cities in all of Nevada. Clark County is by far the biggest. I think it's 70% of the population. 70% of the entire population of the state. I mean, it's huge. Right. It's, it's a whole ballgame. Right. So it's how you perform in Clark County is really important. If you think of those casinos, if you think of that infrastructure, the essential workforce is the underpinning of the entire Vegas economy. And overwhelmingly, those numbers are Latino. And the Culinary Union, which was largely pushed for and built and developed by Harry Reid, at the time the Senate leader, built a machine that brought the Democratic Party back into a stronger position for a very long period of time. That began to wane, especially in the last few years with COVID and the COVID shutdowns. The, when, when casinos slowed, when business slowed, jobs slowed. When jobs slowed, organizing slowed. When organizing slowed, the votes trended downward. So what I see in Nevada is this. I'm seeing this essential workforce finally coming back together. Again, our reporter friend at Newsweek, Adrian Garasquillo, wrote probably the most important political story coming out of Nevada just a couple of days ago. We'll put that link uh, just below the site to take a look at that story. Without that union, you do not have the ability to win statewide races. That's first. The second is because it's largely an immigrant workforce, it tends to lean more socially conservative. Not hugely, but enough, enough in a statewide contest the size of Nevada's to show that there is this rejection of this cultural drift of the Democratic Party. I think some of that will be corrected in the post-Dobbs world, but for the most part, most of the polling has been showing a move to the right in Nevada that is bigger than even the Rio Grande Valley in in Texas. Cortez Mastro is sitting at a single-digit lead amongst Hispanics. She should be winning by 35, 40 points, okay? Some of the polling that Democrats have done have shown Donald Trump with a 40% approval rating amongst Latinos in Nevada, 40%. So re more recently migrated, essential workforce that was opposed to the shutdowns, and undeniably this movement towards a more Protestant evangelical position, all three of those added together in Clark County show that the Latino vote share is not going to be what it once was for the Democrats. It's not the house that Harry built, Harry Reid built, and there's going to be some challenges for uh, Cortez Masto and the Democrats general. I'm not saying they're going to lose. I'm saying they've got a much, much, much bigger dogfight on their hands than anybody realizes and nobody is paying attention. Let me jump in on a couple points there. And let's talk about, uh, there's a governor's race going on there. For those of you who've probably forgotten, there is a incumbent Democratic governor. Uh, Sisolak is his name. And he is running. And he's not super popular. Nobody even knows his name. I had to look his damn name up. I just told you that, Madrid. And if I've got to look up his name, it means I ain't working with him. Like nobody I know is working with him. I'm sure he's running a great campaign. I'm not sitting here going to be poo-pooing on a Democratic campaign that I don't know. He may be running an amazing operation. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Is that Democrats have a fault of trying to connect with the Latino community. This is the key. 
They show up. We show up. I show up. In the last month, two months, three months, I'll run some Spanish ads, do some mail and digital, and go, Democrats are good. And Democrats are better than Republicans if you ask Chuck, and that's what all my ads say. But that don't give me a real connection to the community. Mm-hmm. With Bernie, thank you so much for everything you always say about what we did with Bernie. We built that over almost a year. Yeah. So we had a deep-seated community. We had an office in the community. We had 100, people don't know this, we had 100 Latino organizers in Nevada based out of the East Los Angeles, East Las Vegas office. So we mm-hmm. had deep ties to the community, hired people from the community. A year out. A year out, right? Started nine months as my first paid staffer there in that office, opened up the East Las Vegas office. Mike's point about the culinary union and the reason that they are a badass, and it was, again, great article by our friend Adrian Karaskiel, is the reason that they are so important to the party is they have that natural connection to the community. They live there. They work there. They go to the taquerias. They go to the washeterias. They go to the Cardenas Market. They're in that community. Their kids go to school there. And guess what? They all work in the casinos because that's where the jobs are that have health care and benefits and what the union has fought so much for this group. So that's the missing key that COVID broke down with this union. If this union is not strong, the party is not strong because they have no direct effect. Mm. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, Senator Cortez Masto, can send all the mail and Spanish ads that she wants, and that's good. I would advise her to do that. But unless she has a real connection that's there every day, even when there's not an election, and that's what the union gives them, this is the key and why that article that Adrian wrote was so important, because they must be strong. Well, Chuck, you will say that they weren't with Bernie, and how did you do that if the union wasn't with Bernie to overcome that? I wrote a whole book about this. You should read about it. And I figured out a way to go right to the membership. No disrespect to the culinary. I'm giving them the boost that they say, saying, you're the badass. I'm here with all due respect, but I'm going to try to go right to your members and talk to them about Bernie. Mm -hmm. So Because I was respecting their power. I wanted to take their power and give it to their members to say, make your choice, Bernie's with you. We are very much pro-union. That's why this union piece is so key. The last point on this Nevada stuff is what we've been talking about. The average age of a Latino is younger than the regular voter in Nevada. So in what me and Mike talked about earlier in this podcast about the low turnout for drop-off elections, it gets exponentially a bigger factor in Nevada because there's more Latinos there's more younger Latinos, and they're more apt to be affected by this low turnout in an off-year election. We've seen it through history in this particular state going back to 14 and to your point. And I think that that is a big key. On the good side, and let me end this rant on this, is that there's lots of good things happening in Nevada because people now have woken up to what me and Mike are talking about. So guess what? The Senate campaigns, the Senate super PACs, the party in Nevada have outspent Republicans 20 to 1 in Spanish language advertising for the last six months. They've been running Spanish language TV for six months. Mm. What we don't know, is that enough of a connection to the community? That's why the culinary is still so key here. And to make up for that, I have seen groups on the ground we've talked about on the show that have been doing canvassing on the ground in these communities that are very well funded and running big canvas operations. Is that enough? We don't know. They just showed up there and started working four months ago. It may be enough to be brilliant strategy or it may be too late. Election day will show us when we see the turnout. But I see my party reacting to it in a good way, which gives me hope. But also fighting that headwind of history and what you described, which is I think why it's now we don't know. And it yeah. makes us uncomfortable, right? Yeah, there needs to be more attention on it. But I really, really hope people are paying really good attention to this and uh, this conversation. I'm listening to Chuck, uh, you got to rewind this four, five, eight different times and take notes. You're getting a real master class. The 2016, the 2016 Nevada caucuses were the first time I heard of Chuck Rocha. I didn't know who he was before that. But when they shocked the world in that primary against Hillary Clinton, I was like, holy shit, something just happened here. Something just shifted. The Bernie Sanders campaign was expressing very strong confidence because of the operation that you guys had on the ground. And caucusing is hard work. Caucusing is work. You got to just not just get people to, 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 to show up in the middle of the day. You got to make them spend a time commitment there to actually work a caucus. People don't, don't forget that. That takes huge investment of time and labor. The fact that you guys were there for a year out explains to me for the first time why you were seeing some of the uh, successes that you were. But people don't remember that when Bernie and Hillary 
met on caucus day in that Nevada primary 2016, or was it 2015? I mean, the first one was in, uh, in was 16. Against Hillary. Right? Yeah. And the next one was against Biden. And you got, yeah. But in, in 16 against Hillary, you guys draw to a 50 50 essentially fight when everyone is expecting, well, this is Hillary. Mainly Clinton. because the culinary, again, this is their yeah. power, came in for Hillary and just beat our butt. Yeah. And we didn't see it coming. That yeah. was a lesson I learned for 20 to Fascinating. be Fascinating. Yeah. I remember watching Bill Clinton walk into the Caesar Hotel. Yeah. He walked in. So I'm working the caucuses at Caesars, mm -hmm. these big, massive caucuses on the strip where anybody could caucus in this particular location at lunch on a Saturday. Wow. The union gives all their employees off for an hour to go caucus, and they all march in together as a group. Show and guess who's leading the march? Bill Clinton. Huh? Bill fucking Clinton. <laughs> and I'm like, we are so screwed. We are so screwed. And I turn to look at Jeff Weaver, and I'm like, I hope we won the other caucuses because we ain't winning this one. But to me... It was a learning experience. Like most consultants, you should learn from your mistakes. Not that we had made mistakes. We had organized. We hadn't done the work as long. We'd only been there for like three months working, Mike. Remember, all that um, momentum happened late with Bernie, so we didn't yeah. get the money till late. Uh -huh. We didn't start raising money till November before a February caucus. So we didn't have the money like we had. And I was like, man, if we ever get to do this again, I know what I'll do, and yeah. I'll be kiss your ass. Yeah. I got to do it again. Well, let me say, look, I remember, and I don't know, this is in the Wayback Machine, but these are the things that, that people like us pay attention to. That was when the hashtag campaign, of the Not My Abuela campaign, do you remember that? Mm -hmm. Where there was this generational divide where Hillary's campaign was trying to portray her as the grandmotherly figure in the Latino community, which is obviously reverent to, to all of us, right? It's your grandmother, might as well be the Virgin Mary, right? She's just iconic in the family, in a very matriarchal structure that we have. But it fell extremely short because a lot of young people who were active on Twitter and active on social media were saying Hillary Clinton is nothing like my abuelita, right? And so this, this hashtag campaign starts to go viral. And I was like, I had never seen anything like that in democratic politics. Latinos, Hispanics had always fallen in line for the Democratic Party when they were summoned to do so. And boy, did you guys turn everything on its head. And I thought something generationally has changed in our community. We are never going to go back to the way that it was again. This is a community that where there's going to be a fight, where young people are engaged and they can organize online in a way that the old school canvassing and organizing may not be able to compete with. Let me say this as we wrap up this podcast for this week is... Um it's talking about something with Nevada that uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say it where it don't sound like too self-grandizing. But I will say as you s jump forward to the caucuses in 2020, mm -hmm. and I took everything that I'd learned of how Hillary and them whooped our butt four years before. And we still broke even with the yeah. Latinos. It was crazy that it was me going, we still did this good. Yeah. And we did this bad of an operation in my mind because right. it was too late. That we started a year early. 100 Latino staffers. We had a Latina, important, a Latina statewide field director for all the field, not for the Latino field, whole but operation. for all the operation was mm -hmm. a woman of color running the whole thing. Put the office in East Las Vegas. I'm in charge of the budget and running the whole campaign, not the Latino part. I'm running the whole campaign. So I'm approving budgets for TV, English and Spanish, mail, digital, and we start outreach early. And every, we organize. Now, Mike, only 17,000 Latinos had ever caucused. Yeah. Our targeted universe for the Latinos we were talking to, I'll never forget, there's 122,000 Latinos. That's crazy. We took every Latino that ever voted in the caucus, 17,000. Every Latino, I remember these numbers like they were yesterday, who had ever voted in a primary, 33,000. We took every Latino who had ever voted in a general election, which ended up being 100,000, and then we added in 16,000 newly registered Latinos, and I talked to all of them for a year. And by election day, caucus day, and granted, they had changed the caucuses where there was three days of early voting, so I worked that, made sure we were getting people to early vote caucus-wise in Nevada. And by election day, we got 73% of Latinos in Nevada to vote for an old man who I love from Vermont, who has a Brooklyn accent, mm -hmm. who is not who you think of as a Latino icon, especially with his voting record and things he has done in his past just mm -hmm. as compared to other politicians. But he is a good, solid vote. I tell you that to say there's a governor's election there's a Senate election. There's three congressional elections. There's 30 House race, state House, Senate, and House races. And my firm did what we did. And we have not been asked or weren't asked to work on 
one yeah. single race in Nevada this cycle. Crazy. One single, not saying that I know it all, but the track record would say that we ain't yeah. bad in Nevada of doing work, but my firm is not doing any of this work. I'm not saying you have to hire Chuck Roach to get Latinos, and I'm sure the folks that are doing a decent job there. Well, I'm going to say it for you. I mean, boys and girls, damas y caballeros, you just got some really, really good stuff right there. Like, I was just enthralled listening to Chuck because those are the stories that you can only hear on this podcast. Right, and that's I'm, true. I'm learning a lot. Like, I, I, I've been doing this a long time listening to that was like, damn, that was really the way you put an army together. And so to hear some of these firsthand accounts and war stories explain how you go from a 17,000 to 122,000 universe, yep. that's how you win Nevada. You get like, 73% of the vote. Yeah. With like, Latinos. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'll tell you what, right now, Sisolak or, or Cortez Masto is not going to win by 115,000 votes in Nevada in November. Guarantee you, that's just not going to happen. Are they putting together that kind of operation to do it? I don't know. I hope but so. if anybody knew, you, Chuck Roach is saying, I hope so. We don't know. And if we don't know, I'm saying it's probably not likely, but really, really good stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Those are stories I had never heard. That type of an event, that campaign changed the whole trajectory of the way Latino voters vote in a Democratic primary. That had never happened before in history. And folks, you just heard it right there firsthand. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Latino Vote Podcast this week. Coming to you live from uh, Washington, D.C. We're getting ready to now record our Patreon part. And we got some special guests, Mike. Yeah, we've actually had a special guest here for most of the recording here during this podcast, Shelly Carlin, who is one of the OG Patreon subscribers, a big fan of ours. One of the goals here that we're gonna do is trying to go location to location as Chuck and I are meeting up at different places in the country and bringing Patreon people in studio. So thank you for being the first. We're gonna go behind the paywall now to our VIP section and have a little bit of a conversation with you because you moderated the event last night uh, at this conference in DC and we think it was fantastic. We think it was largely well received. You focused almost entirely and exclusively on the changing workforce that is becoming more Latino here in this country. And we're gonna be talking about that on Patreon. So join now if you're not, subscribe here to the Latino Vote Podcast. And we're looking forward to have the conversation with you, Chuck, with Shelly, and myself. And don't forget to go to latinos.vote. Make sure that you share latinos.vote, the new website that we kicked off the campaign. Me and Mike can only do so much with our social media. So go to the site. If you like the site, I want you to tweet the site out. Put it out on Instagram. Put it out on the TikToks. Put it out on all them social medias that you may use on the LinkedIn. Mike put it up on his MySpace. So it's up there fresh on his MySpace. If you want to check out uh, latinos.vote, don't forget to share. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to become a Patreon member. We're now going to go to after hours with Mike and Chuck. Thank you again for tuning in this week.